Have you counted the cost? Well, we come this morning to another one of those penetrating questions of Jesus. We've worked our way through Matthew. We've worked our way through Mark. Sometimes what happens when you get past Matthew, where you tend to consider a lot of them, you get to Mark and maybe you look for those that are included only in Mark, or maybe you look for one that's a question in Mark but isn't a question as it's recorded elsewhere. You get to Luke and you look for the ones, especially that are found only in Luke. And not exclusively, but that has been the case now for several Sundays. You remember last time, the parable of the rich fool, we saw that question from that. Then who shall all these things be? Well, that's only recorded in the Gospel of Luke. Same thing is true this morning when we come to this particular passage. We have Jesus on many, many, many occasions talking about the subject of discipleship. Would you agree? Those of you who have read the New Testament know this many, many times, different places. Where our verse for the bulletin for today actually comes from another of those places in Luke's gospel. It has its parallels in other gospels. Jesus is talking about the subject of discipleship. He talked about the subject of discipleship over and over and over again. In fact, it's even part of the Great Commission that we are, go, are to go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. Discipleship is huge as a topic in the New Testament. But now Jesus, in this particular passage, uses a couple of figures of speech. You could, in loose terms, maybe call them parables. They're not full-fledged stories, but the language is meant to convey certain truths. And we have a question asked of us in verse number 28 about a man who starts building. And then we have another question asked of us in the verse 31 about the king who starts to make war. And Jesus is challenging us through these figures of speech with the idea of counting the cost. And we cannot get away from the fact that discipleship is really where Jesus is headed with this. It is repeated for us three times. You simply cannot miss it. Look in verse number 26. He says, if any man come to me and hate not his father and mother, wife and children, brethren and sisters, yea, in his own life also, what are the next words? He cannot be my disciple. We get to the next verse. And whosoever doth not bear his cross and come after me. What are the next words? He cannot be my disciple. And then we get down to verse 33. So likewise, whosoever he be of you that forsaketh not all that he hath. What are the next words? He cannot be my disciple. Does that bring you up short? Does that make you think? It does me. It really challenges me. It really makes me think about where I am in my Christian walk and if I live up to what Jesus really wants me to be and what the concepts of discipleship really are. But you see, Jesus, with these figures of speech, gets very specific now. The general subject may be discipleship, but Jesus nails the issue the problem that most of us have, and I want to categorize it with two thoughts this morning, two key thoughts, because I think when you break this down, you see the issue very clearly by thinking about these two propositions and asking yourself, me asking myself, in which category do I fall? And so, fellas, if you want to bring up this first point, it's first of all the wannabes. Well, you know that we kind of didn't spell that right, but that's kind of the common spelling of it, right, when we think about this. The want-to-bees, the wannabes. How do you think this comes up? Does this relate to the text? It does in verses 25 through 27, because just like last week, in the 
lead up to the parable of the rich fool where we found that question. Just like last week, it's kind of interesting that Luke points out to us at the beginning of all of this, again in verse 25, that great multitudes are following Jesus. Now you know what? Jesus is wise enough to know something. Think about this for a moment. Anytime you have great multitudes of people attracted to the Lord, or maybe we would say anytime you have great multitudes attracted to religion, something of that nature, well, Jesus knows that the commitment will vary. There will be some who are serious. There will be some who genuinely are interested. There, are, there will be some who are willing to make a genuine commitment. And there will be many, many people who have some interest, but they really aren't willing to do what it takes, to commit what it takes, to be what it takes, to really be a follower of Christ. Anywhere you have multitudes, you have the wannabes. There are people who see the benefits. You say to yourself, well, really? I mean, you know, some people aren't interested in the Lord or some people aren't interested in religion at all. But certainly where you see vast crowds of people who profess to have some interest, there really is something of an attractive thought for a lot of people in the idea of following the Lord. Do you know some people do that for respectability? It's just kind of respectable. It, it's kind of interesting, really, when it gets to be election time, how many uh, politicians start talking about different things, and including the Lord and this type of thing and what they do, but they're far from it on most of the other occasions or maybe even in their personal lives. But it can be a respectable thing to do. Some people are interested in religion because there are certain benefits that they see the Lord giving them. These multitudes that followed Jesus, just think what they saw. They saw miracles. Do you think that might interest people? Do you think that might draw huge crowds? Well, obviously it did because as the crowds saw people healed by Jesus and saw Jesus grant blessings to different people, they thought, boy, you know, that's pretty attractive. That's something I could get interested in. And so this is why Jesus no sooner talks, uh, the Luke no sooner introduces the fact that these great multitudes are here than it's almost like Jesus kills the service. It's almost like he drops this atom bomb because you'd think a preacher would be really glad to have all these vast throngs of people. And Jesus instead stands up and says something like in verse 26, if any man come to me and hate not his father and mother and his wife and children, brethren, sisters, yea, in his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. Man, what a crowd killer. That's very sobering. That turns away a whole lot of people. Do you know today a, a very useful illustration for us to get this concept of where a lot of people are is thinking of God in terms of a vending machine God. Which is exactly the way many, many people consider God. A vending machine God, somewhere where you just sort of go up and plunk in some money and you press the button or buttons and drops down what you think God might be able to do for you. Play that video, would you, so people can see this. You had the slide right there. I need some audio.
Hmm, let's see. What looks good? What am I in the mood for? Huh. Some wisdom looks nice. I could really use that. Hmm, strength is good too. Might as well take some of that. I wonder if they have any mercy here. Da, 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 da. Ah, good. I'll take a bit of that as well. Uh, hmm. I think I'll pass on that. Ew. No. Yes, please. Well, who doesn't want some more of that? Yeah. I definitely could use some of those. And to finish... Boom. Uh, ooh. Mm, uh... You know what? Alright. Okay, we'll make it work. We'll, we'll do it today, we'll make it work. this catches us and forces us to ask ourselves is that really what we are and how we conceive of God you see the young man come up to the vending machine and I hope you didn't know didn't fail to notice because it becomes an important point in a moment that he walks up to it and he puts some money in at the beginning and then he surveys the different products that are available and he sees a number of things that he finds attractive he sees wisdom yeah we could all use that he sees faith well who wouldn't want faith he sees power he sees friends he sees money all those kinds of things that we really could see God giving to us but when he looks at humility he kind of thinks uh oh when he gets to discipline he says ew and passes on that and when he's decided what all of his order is going to come to, the little message, I don't know if you caught that, that comes across the screen where it shows the tally, the price is 15 minutes of prayer, a 15-minute prayer. Even that he's not really sure he can muster, but finally he says, ah, we'll make it work. So you notice the same thing is true in our story because each of these people is willing to bring something to the table. These are not just people who looked at religion or looked at Jesus and said, I don't want anything to do with that. Because first of all, think about the guy who was the builder. He was committed to it enough that he laid the foundation, right? So he, he brought something to the table. He has some interest. He's a wannabe. And then we think about the next guy. He's a warrior. He wants to advance. That's the whole thing. He wants to advance. He brings something to the table too. He brings 10,000 troops. He's willing to commit you know, they each bring something to the table, but Jesus, it's these people that he's challenging. I thought you might be interested in this. Somebody, you, sometimes you go to the internet and you look for these things, and it, it, it's sometimes kind of humorous. It's sometimes you look for, all right, well, what do different people say about what is a wannabe? And uh, then sometimes they post the different answers that people give, and then once in a while they'll, they'll give that thing that says best answer. Have you ever seen anything like that? kind of interesting well I couldn't resist this one I thought you would really like this one this morning because a guy responded about well what is a wannabe and uh, he's a biker now you know the difference between a cyclist and a biker don't you really I mean one time I referred to my chiropractor as a biker and he said no cyclist 
A cyclist is a guy riding a bicycle. A biker is somebody on a Harley or the like. So be sure you have that. Here's what he says about it. He talks about wannabe bikers. He says this. He said, that's a guy that goes out and buys a fancy custom bike and an ACDC t-shirt, and all of a sudden, he's a biker. He says, not only do they not know how to work on a bike, they don't even own any tools to work on it. They also buy a leather jacket, and all of a sudden, they're easy rider. They may be bike enthusiasts, but they're not bikers. We call them RUBs, rich urban biker. Most of the time, they got money, more money than sense, and then he gives a little piece of advice, always ride far in front of them or far behind them. Kind of interesting, isn't it? Wannabe biker. There's a lot of wannabe Christians. There's a lot of wannabe disciples. So then we come to our second point, which is what we'll call this morning the willing to be's. This is kind of where now it gets down to brass tacks, beginning in verse number 28, where Jesus starts to bring to bear the real message that he has in using these two figures of speech. Because what he's going to tell us and what he has already intimated in his opening two verses about you cannot be my disciple unless you love me supremely. You cannot be my disciple unless you take up your cross and come after me. Jesus tells us that the thinking of the wannabe is wishful thinking. It's not biblical. It's not what the Bible describes about a disciple. Now, I don't know about you this morning, but I'm serious about this concept of discipleship. I'm serious about this issue of what I'm doing in my life and following Jesus Christ. I do not want to be a wannabe Christian or a wannabe disciple. I want to give everything I have. I want to live my life day by day, figuring out what it is that God wants me to do and making those decisions when I have to each day as I come to them. That's where I'm at. And I can't profess to be there, but I can preach to you this morning and tell you that's where I'm at. So this concerns me because Jesus says, first of all, in the figures of speech that he gives, if you want to be a disciple of mine, you have to finish what you start. Here's a guy, he's a wannabe, he commits enough, he puts enough money in the vending machine that he lays the foundation, but then all of a sudden he gets cold feet. He draws back, he says, well, I don't know whether it's worth this much to me. The other guy is a warrior, he wants to advance. Now if you think about it, these two concepts that are involved in these two figures of speech They are wonderful concepts for the Christian life. The first guy is a builder. Did you know that God wants us to be builders? You just turn over your bulletin and look on the back and look at the mission statement of our church because if you really want to study the New Testament, you're going to find out something. You're going to find out that there's two key tasks that God gives to the church. One is to evangelize the lost, and the other is to edify the saints. Do you know what the word edify means? It means to build up. To build up. The mission of the church is spiritual. 
The mission of the church is to build up people, for us to build up one another in our faith in Christ. We cannot divorce the fact that there are times when God wants us to do physical building. But regardless of that, building is certainly something that's a New Testament concept and a great figure for where God wants us to be as a church and where God wants us to be as believers. He wants us building one another up for the sake of the kingdom of God. The other guy, he's an advancer. One guy's building, one guy's advancing. Why do you say that? Well, because he's on the move. He's on the move. He has 10,000 troops and he's on his way to join in combat with this other king who has 20,000 troops and all of a sudden when he gets there, somehow he loses his nerve. Somehow he decides to himself, eesh, I don't know about this and he too draws back. See, there's a difference between someone who's willing to be and someone who wants to be. Nor can we use this figure that Jesus gives about counting the cost as some sort of a pragmatic business formula because we have to realize that Jesus wants us to finish. Did you know that? Paul said, I have fought, my, fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. Now, if you want to be biblical, I want to be biblical. We have to finish what we start. God wants us also to be victorious. The man who's in a struggle, the man who's in a fight, did you ever stop to think about the fact, what a a figure that is for, for the Christian life? Did you think you're in a struggle when you got up this morning? I'm not even sure I had to wait to get up this morning. I had a restless night. It seemed like I had so many dreams that in the first part of the night, I couldn't tell whether I was awake or asleep. And it's just like all these things kicking around, all these things rolling around. And I woke up at 4 o'clock in the morning, and I thought, well, get up for a minute. I got up for a moment, washed my mouth out, got back in bed, and had another dream or two. You ever have those deals where you, you're engrossed in some dream or whatever, and you wake up, and you feel like a Mack truck ran over you? Like I had somebody telling me recently, if you lie down in the afternoon to take a nap, and you think you're going to feel better, and you get up with a headache from the nap. You see, Jesus goes on to say a couple things. If you think about these illustrations, it's pretty easy to grab hold of these concepts. He says, if we're going to finish and if we're going to be victorious, both of which the Lord wants, he wants the guy that goes forward with 10,000 troops. Did you notice it often seems like we're outgunned? Did you notice that 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 feeling often comes to us in the Christian experience that we just feel like we're overwhelmed? How are we going with 10,000 to overcome 20,000? I almost think maybe the Lord wants it that way sometimes so we realize we don't have the resources in and of ourselves. But by God's grace, we can prevail. By God's grace, we can finish. He wants us to do both things. First of all, Jesus said, there's going to be outlay. If you want to be my disciple, the wannabe is over here. You want to be my disciple, there's two things involved, and the first one is outlay. You think about this man that wants to build a tower, it's going to cost him something, isn't it? That's where this question comes from. It's going to cost him resources. It's going to cost him time. It's going to cost him energy if he's going to finish the tower. Say, why in the world did Jesus give that illustration? Did people in the New Testament really build towers? They did. I mean, this is very practical, beloved, when you realize Jesus actually used this in another parable. 
He's talking about a man who had a vineyard. And he says in Mark chapter 12, verse 1, it's the parable of the householder. He said, a certain man planted a vineyard. And he set an hedge. And he goes on and talks about some of the other things. And it ends up by saying this, and built a tower. Why would he do that? Why would he include that in all the different things that he outfits his vineyard with? Well, in the New Testament, the tower was something you'd use to overwatch your vineyard. You had to keep people from coming in there and stealing what you have. It's also a place where they would put their tools, just like we would do. And they would be there for safekeeping. And so it was a, a measure of security. It was a way to protect his investment. But he certainly had an outlay. He, first of all, outlaid what it took to build the foundation, but it was going to cost more to finish the tower. And Jesus said, you know what? If he doesn't finish the tower, he's going to end up being a laughingstock. He's going to end up bringing reproach on himself. People are going to mock him. Boy, doesn't that ring home. I don't know. I guess one of the blessings you have of getting to a certain place a little further down the road is you have a lot to look back on. You have a, a more mature picture of ministry and Christianity than when you started out. Not that when you started out what you had wasn't okay, but you get a little further down the road, say about 30 years worth or about 35 years worth, and all of a sudden you start seeing some things. And I'll tell you, one of the things I've seen over the course of ministry is how many people do exactly this. How many people get some interest in religion? They're, they're like that parable of the soils that Jesus talked about, about the guy that goes out and throws the seed down where there's not a whole lot of soil, but because there's warmth underneath, it kicks up very quickly. But the moment the heavy sun comes because there's no moisture, with the moment in the interpretation he says that some kind of trial or testing comes along, he withers. He doesn't have any root. And you see this. You see people that decide, oh, you know, I think I'm going to start in the church. And they last about six weeks. You have other people, you know, that say, you know, uh, I saw that guy baptized last Sunday, and I think that'd be a good idea, so I'll, 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 I'll be baptized. And they, they do that. And they go along for a little while, and you get the impression that, boy, here are these stalwarts, here are these people that are really interested in the things of the Lord. You get all excited about it just like they were excited about it when they first started coming, and all of a sudden, you don't see them anywhere. Listen, beloved, in the years this church has been in existence, you could not seat in this room the number of people who fit that description I gave just now. Do I say that from some point of pride? Absolutely not. I look at it and I say, there go I by the grace of God. I look at it and I see people who have quit and I know how easy it is to quit. I look at people who have fallen by the wayside, you can't find them anymore. Do I think they're Christians? Many of them, I really think they're Christians. But they hit some point in their Christian life where all of a sudden the outlay was more than they were willing to give. Why is that? Well, the next point helps us understand that because there's outlay for the guy who wants to build the tower. He's got to be willing to put out some cash. He's got to be willing to put out some resources. He's got to be willing to put out some time and energy. But the other guy 
you can bring that other word up now, fellas, if you would, is opposition. See, this king finds himself at odds with this other king, and you and I find ourselves at odds with the world, the flesh, and the devil. There's a fight out there in case you haven't realized it. There's opposition involved, and Jesus addressed that head on. Did you ever notice how if you declare that you might have an interest in following Jesus, that all of a sudden sometimes the dearest people and the closest people to you have the biggest problem and the biggest objection to that? Did you ever notice that? That's what happens here. Jesus says this, verse 26, If any man come after me and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters, oh, what is this? Jesus talking about hating people? No, he's just using the language of exaggeration in order to make a point. We call it hyperbole. We know this because when you consult the parallel comment that he made elsewhere, Matthew 10 and verse 37, he said this, He that loveth father, mother, more than me is not worthy of me, and he that loveth son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. See, it's a comparative thing. It's not that Jesus is telling us, go forsake your home, go forsake your parents, go forsake your spouse, go forsake. No, he's just pointing out the fact that, you know, sometimes you get into this thing and you find out, where are all these friends I thought I had? Even some of life's dearest oppose us when we declare that we're interested in following the Lord. Sometimes opposition is involved, and sometimes the opposition seems stronger. But the point that Jesus is making in terms of what is true discipleship is who do we love, whom do we love supremely? Not that we're to hate family, not that we're to hate other people, but in the contest between Jesus and that person, where does Jesus come out? At the top of the stack or the bottom of the stack? That's the question he's asking. This is why discipleship is a sobering thing. This thing of following the Lord is a sober thing. Following with Jesus also involved take up our cross. You know, if a fellow took up the cross in the New Testament, you know that was humiliation. Just think about Jesus for a moment. They made him bear that cross. He walked through those streets. It was shame. That's what it involved. It involved shame because it was just like having on a PA system for everybody to hear. Here goes a man who's a criminal. Here goes a man who's condemned by the Roman Empire. Here's a criminal that Rome adjudges worthy of death. There's humiliation involved in the cross. You get ultimately to Golgotha and there's more than humiliation. There's death. Being willing to say no to yourself being willing to sacrifice the things that maybe are dearest to you if that's what the Lord calls for. Now look, I don't want to scare you off, although that's kind of what Jesus was doing to the wannabes. But there are some things we need to clear up. You know something? You don't see all this, and that's what I was trying to make this point a while ago. You don't see all this in the beginning, right? You don't see everything that God may ask of you in life. Do you ever think how wise God is not to show us that? Who would be here today if God showed you 20 years from now? Well, you might. I mean, you might be out on the victory side, or you might see enough of the big picture that you'd say, yeah, it was worth it all. But if God showed you all those different fits and turns that were along the journey, 
all those bumps you'd hit, all those valleys you'd go through, all those mountains that would loom before you and seem to make your passage and your continuance impossible. If God showed you all of that, would you be like the young man at the vending machine and walk away and say, you? No, I think there's a wisdom in that, but you know, it doesn't hurt us every once in a while to do some thinking that's introspective. You know what that means? It means you just look in the mirror. It means you just take some time to consider yourself. It means you quit thinking about what the other guy's doing. You, you quit thinking about how the sermon applies to the guy next to you. And you think about how it applies to you. Well, I, I got to thinking about this. I can only tell you my personal story. But I, when I thought about this, I thought about the fact that, you know, 47 years now, I've been doing this. Because Jesus Christ intervened in my life when I was 17 years old. And standing here before you today, I'm 64 and a half. It was in the summer. This is in the summer. So 47 years. I didn't see everything. God withheld that. I'm sure intentionally and I'm sure wisely. So I couldn't know. You can't know. You're not called upon here today to sit here and think about, well, what would I do if I were confronted with this? What would I do if I were confronted with that? That's not how you live the Christian life. You have to live the Christian life day by day. You just have to get up tomorrow. You just have to get up today and find what it is that your hand finds to do and figure out what it is that you have to do and figure out what it is that you're called upon to do in that particular day. Then the question comes, am I willing to make the outlay? Am I willing to face the opposition? Then you figure out whether you're the wannabe or the willing to be. As a lady one time came to Robert E. Lee, the Daily Bread actually tells this story. It was, according to the story, uh, actually it's not the Daily Bread, I wanted to mention you the source of this, but this woman came and it was described as possibly being his last visit to Northern Virginia. So the young mother came, she had a baby and she wanted him to pray for the baby and he took the baby in his arms and then he looked at the woman and here's what he said teach him he must deny himself well you know what really interested me about that story was not so much the actors that were involved although what is said does make this point it was noticing that the person who used this illustration was Chuck Swindoll in his book living above the level of mediocrity in other words not being a wannabe. In other words, when all is said and done, the discipleship that's true, the discipleship that's biblical, will involve everything, not just something. The young man comes to the vending machine. He's got something he's willing to put on the table. It's not everything. And Jesus says, you know what? When the chips are down and you have to make a decision, I don't want something. I want everything. You know he's the only person in this universe who has the right to ask that of me. And in his sovereignty 
And as we heard about in the Sunday school lesson this morning, this same Jesus hath God exalted to be both Lord and Christ. And as I have walked this journey and figured out more and more of what it is that Paul was saying on the road to Damascus when Jesus intervened in his life, and his response was, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? Ye call me Master and Lord, Jesus said to his disciples one day, and ye say, well, for so I am. Oh, we call him that. Do we really mean that? It was a man that went one day into an artist's shop, and he noticed there something that got his attention because it was an unfinished sketch. He looked at the easel. He saw the drawing. There was an interesting story behind it, a story of a young boy that came to his mind, not the person who sketched the sketch. It's just that the unfinished sketch made him think about something that he knew about, the story of a boy who sat at his mother's desk, and he was drawing a picture also. Now, he was using a fountain pen, and so he had a bottle of ink, if you can remember back to when it used to be that way. And he drew the picture of a dog. Well, his mother walked in, and she thought, my, that is a nice picture of a dog, but she asked the boy, she said, where is his tail? He had drawn the dog and had put no tail. Did you know his answer was the situation with a lot of us? His answer to his mother was, it's still in the bottle. In our history classes a long time ago, maybe 127, when we were in school, we learned a certain amount of history. I love history. Do you love history? I just, you know why? Because it's full of stories. And you learn from stories. And if you really think about it, it's not someone else's story. It's his. It's God's story. But anyway, to the point, you remember the Spanish conquistador and explorer whose name was Hernando Cortez? Do you remember Cortez? Cortez decided that he was going to do something that no one else had ever done. He was going to find and take the treasure of the Aztecs, who for 600 years had never been conquered and never had anyone take their treasure. He left on his voyage with 500 soldiers and 100 sailors. He had 11 ships. He landed on the shores of the Yucatan. You know, despite the fact that he had a large, what was considered a large army, what he was up against was like having 10,000 and coming against 20,000 because no one had ever done this before. Some of his men didn't think he could succeed, and so there was a little palace coup, as it were. Some of them decided that they were going to return to Cuba. Cortez got wind of the plot. He captured the ringleaders. He wanted to make sure nothing like that would ever happen again. He wanted to make sure that his men were completely committed, completely committed, completely committed and so he told them they were going to scuttle the ships. Some of them resisted. Some of them thought he was mad. Scuttle the ships. He said, how are we going? They said, how are we going to get home? He said, if we are going home, we are going on their ships. 
they scuttled the ships. The path forward for Cortez was very clear as a leader. He knew what it took, all or nothing. So does Jesus, all or nothing. The option of failure was gone. It was conquer as heroes or die. So they sunk the ships. He kept one single ship back to take back to the king of Spain what was called the Royal Fifth. He wanted a fifth of the treasure if the expedition proved to be successful. You know what this act of Cortez that seems like lunacy, seems like insanity, do you know what it did? It absolutely transformed the level of commitment of his men. They went from being somewhat committed to absolutely and supremely committed. Do you know, and I think you do know from story, that from history, that they are incredibly, they succeeded in this unlikely feat to conquer the Aztecs and to plunder their riches. And they were able to do it for one simple reason. And that was because they had no other choice. They had no failback. The ships were gone and the only alternative was death. What's the lesson? Retreat is easy if you leave yourself that option. Do you know all this in advance? No. Do you know what that's going to involve? No retreats, like William Borden said. No reserves. No retreats. No regrets. Do you know all of that, what that means the first day you become a Christian? No. But you know, this thing is a building process, like I said. And we are being built and God is revealing more and more of the journey as we embrace it as each month, each day, each year successively unfolds. And if we re leave ourselves the option of retreat, we will most certainly not succeed in our mission. Are we all in? Well, we end this today by looking at something that doesn't seem in place. It doesn't seem why Jesus would bring at the end of the story, verses 34 and 35, why would he bring up this metaphor that he uses elsewhere? Salt is good, but if the salt have lost its savor, wherewith shall it be seasoned? It is neither fit for the land nor yet for the dunghill, but men cast it out. He that hath ears to hear, let him hear. Why? Because it fits. It's because salt starts out with a savor just like we do. We say we're going to follow Jesus. We say we're going to be disciples. We start out with some savor. We start out by bringing something to the table. But if the salt loses its savor, if the Christian loses his nerve, if he becomes governed by fear, if he becomes governed by indecision, if he leaves himself that option, in the Christian experience, when those decisions come, when those tests come, it won't work. It's not something Jesus wants, it's everything he wants. To come in closing to another illustration taken from the war between the saints, history again, <laughs> the war between the, the states, sorry, <laughs> the war between the saints, that's in church. It was a two-week brutal campaign. You should read the account sometime. 
They were plagued by rising floodwaters and brutal winter weather. These two battles took place in February of 1862. They took place in the Western theater of the war. See, most people don't read much about that because they just think about all the battles in Virginia and Maryland and Pennsylvania. The Western theater of the war was a key part of the Union strategy because they knew that if they could take control of the Mississippi River, if they could take that from the Confederates, they would divide the Confederacy and they would win. It was a key part. It was called Operation Anaconda by the old retiring general who realized that a blockade would work. A blockade down the East Coast, a blockade all around to New Orleans, and they had to take the river as well. Think about that if you know your geography. Think about what that does to isolate. On the East Coast, you cut off trade. You cut off supplies. On the Western theater of the war, you cut off the ability for those things that would come from the western side of the river, those supplies, grain and so forth from coming in. It was a strategy that worked. And the man that Abraham Lincoln finally got on the job to bring victory in that was a man by the name of Ulysses S. Grant. Two forts were left after Vicksburg. Vicksburg was the big one. But below Vicksburg, south on the river, there were two forts. There was Fort Henry and Fort Donelson. They had to take control of those two forts. Hence, Grant started off on his campaign. The Confederates were plagued by poor generalship. They didn't have the people in the west they had in the east. And after three days of heavy fighting, First of all, Fort Henry fell, then the battle for Fort Donelson came, and the Confederate generals, generals, of whom there were three or four, decided that they would hold a council of war, and when they held that council of war late one night, they decided that there was no point in continuing. The cost was too high. So three of them withdrew, and when three of them withdrew, they left at Fort Donelson a fellow general. An interesting name, Simon Bolivar Buckner was the general who was left commanding. His job was basically to cover the retreat of the rest of the army. His job was to stay there and give fight to Grant so that the other Confederate forces could escape. He did his job until the early morning of February 16, 1862. He sent by courier a communication to General Grant while it was still dark. Here's what he wrote. In consideration of all the circumstances governing the present situation of affairs at this station, I propose to the commanding officer of the federal forces the appointment of commissioners to agree upon terms of capitulation, that's a fancy word for surrender, of the forces and fort under my command, and in that view suggest an armistice, armistice until 12 o'clock today. Well, Buckner was counting on something that didn't play out. Buckner was counting on the fact that he had been a friend of Grant before the war. He thought that he would find some sympathy with Grant. He thought that he could parley with him, which is what he really wanted to do. He, he was intent on surrendering, but he wanted to do it with honor. He wanted to have some parley in the thing, parole and other things for his troops. 
Grant didn't realize it was Buckner he was dealing with. Even though the message came under Buckner's signature, he thought it was one of the other generals, and he didn't have very high regard for that particular general. So he took an incredibly hard position, measured by what other surrenders had taken place so far. Grant said this communication back to Buckner. They're words that he's become famous for, by the way. Sir, yours of this date proposing armistice and the appointment of commissioners to settle the terms of capitulation is just received. No terms except an unconditional and immediate surrender can be accepted. I propose to move immediately upon your works. So Ulysses S. Grant picked up the moniker of unconditional surrender grant. But his words have a spiritual meaning, too. No terms can be accepted except unconditional and immediate surrender. And in the event that Buckner had resisted, Grant told him what would be the fate. I propose to move immediately upon your works. Buckner surrendered. I would advise me today, and I would advise you today to do the same thing. I don't know where you are. I don't know what God may be speaking to you about. I don't know what decision you face in your life. I don't know what challenge is on your plate. It's not given to me to know those things. I come here and preach the messages and let God do the dealing. I just know this, that if God is speaking to you today about something and there is not surrender there is not a willingness to give just not something but everything in that point at which God is dealing with you he will move upon your works he will send his Holy Spirit to work in your life he is patient he is kind he is gracious but he will hound you mercifully but unremittingly until you give him what he longs for and you give him what he bought on the cross of Calvary. What Paul said to the Corinthians, know ye not that your bodily is the temple of the Holy Spirit which ye have of God and ye are not your own. For ye are bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit which are God.